This message was recorded live at Life Church Lancashire, a contemporary Christian church in the north of England. Learn more at lifelanks.org. My name is Matt, and this morning I want to speak to you. I want us to all think together, in fact, about the path to greatness, the path to greatness. Now, when we think about greatness, we maybe think about the people who bring, build large buildings and put their own name on it. We maybe think about people who win medals and trophies and go down in their annals of sporting history. We maybe think about people who have statues erected to them. Greatness. But Jesus always seems to brilliantly subvert our expectations. And when we think about the idea of greatness, and expectations are something that are often subverted so often that actually what you think we should expect, what we're designed to expect, we often expect the opposite, don't we? Think about it. When you go to the dentist, you don't expect to get better. You expect to get hurt. When you go and catch a bus, you expect it to be late. When you go to London, you expect it to cost you. When you go to watch Rovers, you expect them to lose. What, what, Doncaster Rovers, they lost 4-0 at home to Fleetwood yesterday. When you host a barbecue, you expect it to rain. When you go and hear a sermon, you expect to fall asleep. Let's see if your expectations are subverted this morning. In Mark chapter 10, it says that they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside. This is Jesus' closest friends and followers and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, Jesus said, and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The disciples were with Jesus on their way up to Jerusalem, on their way up to the big city, the holy city, the center of things in their religion, in their region. And they knew what was going to happen, or at least they thought they did. 
But Jesus tells them, no, it's not going to go that way. You see, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be spat on. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be, I'm going to be killed. This is how it's going to go down. But the disciples have an expectation. They have an expectation that what's going to happen when they get to the city, they get to the big city, they get to the holy city, is that Jesus is going to become king. He's the Messiah, the one they've been waiting for, the deliverer. And Jesus is going to be set up as king and they will be reigning with him in this position of greatness. And Jesus is going to be on a throne and we want the prime positions. We want to be there with you. We want to be on your right and your left. I want to be your right hand man. I want to be the second and third in charge. We want to be there in this place of honor because we know what's going to happen. You're going to come, you're going to overthrow our oppressors, and you're going to set yourself up as king in this new kingdom that you've been talking about. And although Jesus has talked here for the third time clearly about his death and his suffering, and he's made this way known to them, all they seem to have heard is, it might be a bit difficult, It might be a bit tricky. There might be a bit of opposition. It might be choppy waters, but we're going to get there. We're going to get to that place where you sit on the throne as king and we sit with you. But even, it seems like they don't hear. Because in the context of Jesus saying, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be spat at. I'm going to be killed. They say, cool, can we sit next to you on your thrones? It's like they just miss it. They miss the context. They miss what's going on. They miss what Jesus is saying. And you see, following Jesus means giving up expectations. It demands that we actually give up those expectations. Now, last time I spoke on Mark, I spoke about preconceptions and how those stop us from receiving the good that is there for us. So, You can listen to that and you can get into that. So I don't want to talk too much about expectations today. But we see, again, that the requirement of following Jesus is giving up those sorts of expectations. And the reality is the disciples had the preconception of this kingly earthly Messiah that only the cross could rid them of. It was only after the cross that they could see, that they could understand, that they could actually be rid of something that was so fixed. In their minds. And for every one of us, we might have an idea about what, how life should turn out, or what it means to follow Jesus, or what this religious stuff really is. But when you follow Jesus, you find you actually have to leave those things. You're going to have to put those things down. You're going to have to give those things up if you're going to continue to follow. And now, this request is kind of like, it's a child's request, isn't it? Dad, I'm going to ask you a question and you have to say yes. Like, no one's agreeing to that. You know, Jesus does it in Mark's rendering this incredibly careful, diplomatic way. He basically says, you know, what do you want me to do for you? In other words, okay, go on. I'm listening, but I'm not agreeing. And they, they, they say, let us one of us sit at your right and your left in joy, but... G- glory. But Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you go through with this? And amazingly, they say, we can. Amazingly, they agree. They say, we are able in some translations. They didn't know what was ahead of them, but Jesus did. And Jesus said, look, 
I'm not going to grant you these places now. That's, that, that's not what we're here to do. This is something beyond your control. And this is the thing about following Jesus. Following Jesus means giving up control. You see, re- religion grew up through human history and our, our history and our anthropology tells us that the way religion grew up was a, a way of manipulating divine forces for earthly means. But I'm not interested in that kind of religion. That's kind of primitive religion that has grown up. But you see, see, Jesus wants us to relinquish our control. James and John thought, because they were the closest to Jesus, along with Peter, that maybe they could take him to one side, these two brothers, and manipulate him and control him and get their position and get what they wanted. But Jesus just demands one thing. No, will you follow? No, I'm not going to give you that permission. I'm not going to allow you to manipulate me. I'm, I'm not here uh, for the benefit, for, for the result of your own dream, your own selfish ambition. I, I'm not here for that. I'm here to set up this kingdom. And if you want to follow, follow. But, you know, another time, people, the disciples say to Jesus, this is hard teaching. And a lot of people leave because it's hard teaching. So what does Jesus do? He turns around to them and says, right, are you lot going to go as well? Because Jesus has, has, has never uh, been ready to be manipulated, but Jesus is, is starting something new. Something new is breaking out. And Jesus simply says, hey, either follow, either get involved, or maybe it's time for you to leave too. And Jesus means that we have to, and we see this with the, the people who, tr- who try and uh, follow God, the people who attain to that sort of greatness that we still talk about them today. They, they give up their control. They give up the, the idea that they're going to manipulate things, that they're going to be in charge of things, that they're going to be able to control how things turn out. And instead, they commit simply to follow. You know, I, my eldest son is is two years old, and he's moving from dependence to independence. And that's a good thing. That's part of his growth. That's part of his de- development. But it means he wants to be in control. It means, like you, he wants to hold the remote control. It, it means he, 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 he wants to do it. And this is his first... His, his favorite phrase, you know, you, you help him with his cup, you know, you help him brush his hair, you know, you bring something to him and he says, no, no, Ezra will do it. Ezra will do it. I will do it. He, he, he doesn't want it to be done for him anymore. He wants to be in control. He wants to have his hand on the wheel. He even wants to drive the car. I've told him his feet won't reach the pedals. If anyone's got any platform shoes, that'd be great. And then we can, I can take him out around the industrial estates and whatnot and give him a whirl. But it means giving up control and it means simply to follow it means simply to, to take on, and uh, uh, it means that we we'll, might have to go through we, the things that Jesus went through. Jesus said, look, it's, there's a cup, there's a baptism, there's a responsibility that I carry on this mission. There's a thing that I have to go through to get where I'm going. You want to be next to me on the throne, but do you want to pay the price that it costs to get there? And that's the time when a lot of people jump out because they don't realize the cost, or they've been sold something that was far cheaper than what it really does cost. 
You see, the irony, the irony is that they, they, they asked to, to sit on Jesus' left and right when he was in glory, when he was lifted up. But, but what happened when Jesus was lifted up and exalted? He wasn't like the Roman Caesars sat on a throne, but when Jesus was exalted, when Jesus was lifted up on the hill before people, he was lifted up on a cross. And who was on Jesus' left and right? Two other people who were being killed by the Romans. Brigands, criminals were killed on Jesus' left and right. You see, you've got to be careful what you're asking. And they didn't know what they're asking. That's what Jesus said. They missed it. They missed what was really going on. You see, following Jesus sometimes means you end up on a cross. But following Jesus means giving up the control, thinking we can manipulate that, that God can just be something that we use to further our own ends. Actually, Jesus calls us just to follow, and where it ends up, well, it's where it ends up. You see, Jesus goes on in the story. Because it says that when the ten heard about this, they were not happy because you wouldn't be, would you? And in verse 42, Jesus called them and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Now, this is a, a perception of status, of the way that leadership goes. But following Jesus, thirdly, means giving up status. And Jesus paints this picture of how things looked. And we see these sort of leaders in the Bible, we, in this time, in the time of Jesus. We, we see the Roman uh, military leaders and Caesars. We see someone like King Herod who's uh, obsessed, and the whole Herod dynasty, obsessed with power and paranoid about losing it. We see the way that the religious officials uh, try to, to corner the market on religion and they try to keep their privileged positions of status and, and don't like it when people come in to upset the apple cart. We see how things work. And you know, in society today, we're still preoccupied with status. We, we, we look for these status symbols. We look at people and we analyze them. We see the suit that somebody wears. We see the car that they drive, the neighborhood that they live in, the title on their business card, the people they know, the connections they have, the followers on Instagram, their status symbols. When somebody just goes to check the time and they flash that watch, it gives an impression of where they are, where they sit, their status, their position. And sometimes we may know we can't afford that Rolex, we can't afford that Bentley, we can't afford to live in that neighborhood, we haven't got that title on our business card. So within our community, within our small uh, uh, network, we, we try and gather status within that network so that we're respected, so that we're looked to, so that we're seen in a certain way by our peers, preoccupied with status and how we look to others and the power that we wield in that group. But Jesus says, politically, 
things have to work differently in this sort of kingdom, in this sort of world that I'm setting up. You're going to have to give up that preoccupation with status. And you're going to have to stop asking questions like, can we sit on your right and left if you really want to be my right-hand man, if you really want to follow me? We have to give up and we have to give away that preoccupation with status. Jesus says, it's not going to be so with you in verse 43. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you, this is the path to greatness, must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Now, this is an incredible statement in a population where 60% of the people were slaves. Where slavery was all around them where slavery dominated, where everybody knew somebody who was in that situation and got into a bondage that they could not get out of. And James and John knew this well. It says that in the beginning of Mark, when James and John uh, were first called by Jesus, they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. In other words, their father's business was well enough off to employ people. They may have been slaves, they may have just been uh, day laborers or kind of casual laborers, but he employed people beyond his family. He'd grown his business to that level. So if 60% of the population are slaves, and then another huge part of the population are in very insecure, basically like day laboring work, James and John and their father Zebedee were in a very small part of the population who were a bit better off, who had a business going, who were a Above the station of these people. And maybe they thought in asking this question, Jesus, we're we're not that kind of people. We we don't want those kind of jobs. You know, we're already the kind of employing people, the the free people, and we want to be in that sort of position. But Jesus says to a people who have a degree of status, who have a degree of freedom, who have a degree of wealth, the path to greatness in my kingdom is being a slave. Slave-like leadership in this context wouldn't have just been seen as difficult. It would have been seen as offensive, impossible. Jesus, we, we see Herod and the temple he's built. We see Caesar and the empire that is expanding across the whole known world. What is this servant leadership? What is this slave-like leadership? We don't understand what this looks like. But Jesus was the one with the ultimate claim to status. Jesus is the one who had the ultimate uh, sense of power and position in who he was. But it says in another part of the New Testament, the early Christian writings in Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus didn't think that his equality with God was something that he should grasp hold of or use to his own advantage. But instead, he emptied himself of that. He actually took on the very nature of a slave, doulos, a slave, it says in Philippians 2. And he made himself obedient to the mission that God had for him, which meant coming as a slave. What an incredible statement. What an incredible display. You see, what Jesus does, he subverts our idea of power and glory and status and being lifted up and the path to greatness and the cross, as we're going to talk about again more in a few weeks, shatters all of those ideas. 
You see, to follow Jesus, we have to give some things up, things that are weighing us down, things that when we, we carry, we can't carry what he will give us. We've got to give up our expectations, our control, our status, so we can then take something up. Because following Jesus means taking up your cross. And that's what it means to be this sort of slave of all. And Jesus uses this, this phrase, this language a bit earlier in Mark, a, a passage we, we, we didn't have a chance to, to fit in yet during this series, but I want to go back to it because it is such a key idea in Mark. And it says this in Mark chapter 8, and starting at verse 31, that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. That's the religious officials of his day. And that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Because he was very polite. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for you to gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul? Or what can you give in exchange for your soul? If any of you are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes in his Father's glory and with the holy angels. So this idea that we have here of taking up your cross, of losing your life in Mark 8, and the picture we have in Mark 10 of being a servant and a slave together give us this image, they give us this picture of what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to take up the cross. And this is illustrated brilliantly by a, a German 20th century priest and theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Bonhoeffer uh, did his work against the backdrop of the rise of the Nazi, Nazis in Germany. And eventually he paid with it, uh, for it with his life. The Nazis killed Bonhoeffer. And Bonhoeffer says this about the cross, and we've got this quote here on screen. That if our Christianity has ceased to be about serious discipleship, we have watered down the gospel into emotional uplift which makes no costly demands and which fails to distinguish between natural and Christian existence, then we cannot help regarding the cross as an ordinary everyday calamity, as of the trials and tribulations of life. We have then forgotten that the cross means rejection and shame as well as suffering. We're just going to leave that on the screen for a few minutes. Because it's kind of that feel-good feeling that you get like when you watch Strictly Come Dancing, you know, or Bake Off. Boniface pretty strong here. I don't know if he's strong at Jesus who, who calls his closest friend Satan. I'm not sure. But Bonhoeffer is pretty strong here. But, but Bonhoeffer understands in the context that he's living in and the situation he's living in what, what Jesus is really saying. The significance of his words, the, the, the weight of them, and what it really means. You see, it's easy, and, and I see a lot of 
religion today in Christianity that is all about that emotional uplift. It's all happy, happy, sing a song to make you feel better and short little funny messages that'll, you know, send you out with a smile on your face. Now, we're going to get to that. But you've got to see the way. You've got to see the path. So Jesus says, look, I'm lifted up in glory, but do you know the path that it takes to get there? A lot of people want the rewards, but are they prepared to pay the price? And Bonhoeffer gives this picture, and, and this is amazing because you've got to think when Bonhoeffer's working, the Nazis have this belief system. They have this ideology, and the, the later edited works of Nietzsche have been taken by them and twisted into this idea of the will to power. And power is to be prized and weakness is to be shamed. And Christianity is, is to do with weakness. And that's why we need to shake that off. And we need to move to this position of supremacy. And as this story is being told about a superior people and a superior race and a superior ideology, Bonhoeffer continues to share about the weakness of Jesus. And he, he reveals the fact that the cross isn't just about suffering. And, and, and this is brilliant. And I know it's technical and it's translated from the German and everything. But we, we, let's stick with it. Let's watch it. Let's discover what he's saying here because it's genius. That He talks about the fact in the second half here, regarding the cross as an ordinary everyday calamity. Now this is the thing about suffering. And I've talked about suffering here before. We all suffer. It's called life. There's not somebody behind you with a pitchfork poking you up the backside, causing you to suffer. Suffering is life. Suffering happens to everybody who is born. So we could look at the cross if it was just suffering as, oh, well, you know, some people find it difficult to get a secure job. Some people get sick. Some people have bad things happen to them. And Jesus, too. Had a bad thing happen to him. He was unfortunate. He was mistreated. It was a kangaroo court. Jesus suffered. That was a shame. But you see, it's not just a suffering. It's a suffering and it's a rejection. You see, everybody suffers. But when you suffer with Christ, you are suffered and rejected. You see, people will sometimes relate to you when you suffer. They'll sometimes come alongside you and say, there, there, that was difficult for you. I feel for you. I've gone through things. They get that. But when you give your allegiance to Jesus, and when you follow Jesus, for following Jesus, you not only suffer, because everybody suffers, but you're also rejected by men, just as Jesus was rejected. You see, this, the the cross is both suffering and rejection. It's shame. So what happens to many of us as we're called to follow Jesus and take up our cross is that at that point, we refuse. At that point, we give up. At that point, we don't want to take up our cross. We don't, we don't want to do it, and we step off. So you're probably wondering, Matt, why the heck? would I do this? You are not selling this. I mean, I've heard preachers before who've been like, life with Jesus is like driving a Ferrari. 
Now pray this prayer and send me $100. And we've heard that kind of thing. You've probably worked out by now I'm not that kind of guy. We've heard that kind of thing, right? And it's going to solve all your problems and it's a way to manipulate God so he can do what you want. They don't say that, but that's the subtext, right? That's the subtext. And we've heard that. You say, why would, I, why would I do this? Why would I follow Jesus in taking up my cross just as Jesus took up his cross? Why would I do that? Why not I choose the easy religion? Or why not not choose the religion at all and figure this thing out for myself? Because this is too difficult. And I want to move back to the world of ease and comfort. Why would I do this? Well, it's not an easy sell. And it's, it's also a, one of those things that is difficult to explain. But when you experience it, when you taste and see that the Lord is good, when you, when you hold to his teaching, as it says in John 8, and you really become his disciples, and then you know the truth, then the truth sets you free. Somehow, there's people in this room who are saying, yeah, but I've walked through this for decades, and I'm so glad I did. So there's something about the experience that I can't explain to you in two minutes, but as the band come up and join me, and I draw this to a close, I'm going to try and take you through it. I'm going to try and take you through it. Why would I do it? You see, The fact is, when you refuse to take up your cross, when you stop at that point, when you go no further on that journey with Jesus into the hard stuff, into the difficult stuff that requires change, and where you face rejection and shame, at that point, you forfeit this fellowship with Christ. This kinship with him, this oneness with him, that you two are walking to the cross just as he did. You lose that. And it actually leaves you with a heavier burden. You see, Jesus said, my yoke, like the yoke the oxen carried, the burden that I have for you is actually light. And although this seems incredibly strong this morning, when you compare it to the weight of your own fears and the own expectations that you've got on yourself and the burdens that you carry in life and the stress and the anxiety that have plagued you and the difficult people that have wronged you, when you compare it to... To, to facing the future alone, my burden is actually light. And actually the things that we pile on ourselves actually end up being heavier than what Jesus wants to give us. Because Jesus is just saying this, keep following, keep moving forward. And you know that's going to involve suffering, it's going to involve rejection, it's going to involve shame, it's going to involve obstacles. But that is not the point to go off the course. And try and carry your own burdens. You see, when we do that, we show that because we're not willing to walk through this thing that's happening now. This forensic process that's happening. This, this, this reworking of our desires that is, uh, God wants to, to create within us. What we show is that we refuse to deal with our own issues. And that issue that you refuse to deal with will keep holding you back as long as you don't deal with it. And these things begin to eat away at us. 
It says in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, that, that people exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship created things rather than the creator. And this is what happens when we worship, when we give our lives to, when we give our affection to things other than the creator. The, the freedom that God has given for us. When we give ourselves to other things, things that are created, stuff, possessions, status, accumulation of things, uh, a, a relationship, things that can be good things, can be things that we can enjoy, can things that we uh, can use, but when we give ourselves to them, instead of giving ourselves to love and truth and justice and mercy, and peace. What happens is th- these things have a dehumanizing effect on us because we were, we are created by God. The Christian confession says. So when we worship other created things instead of our Creator, it makes us less than human. And Jesus is the prototypical human. In other words, Jesus is what humans really supposed to look like. Jesus is the human perfect life. So when we follow his life, we, we, we don't become not ourselves anymore. We become who we truly are and who we're truly supposed to be. Truly human because we follow after the one who is truly human. The son of man, he even called himself. I love it. You see, carrying his cross, what does it look like? What does it mean? Being the slave of all. It means that we lose our life in his service. It means like Paul said in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, that I no longer live, Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And if he did that for me, then I'm going to do that for him. You see, Jesus died for us and he calls us to die for him and to live for him too. And you see, Paul has got to this place where he says, those desires, those wishes, those, those issues, all those other things that consume my mind, they're faded into the background. And now I have this incredible focus, this incredible vision that is filled with everything that Jesus is opening up to me. And it's filling my life. And actually those worries and those concerns and those weights, They're not holding me back anymore because I know they don't define me. My allegiance to Jesus defines me. And allegiance to anything else will make you less than who you're supposed to be. It's only allegiance to this suffering Christ will bring you through that journey into what greatness is really supposed to look like. And Jesus faced this himself. It says in Mark chapter 14 when he was facing his own cup, And he told them how difficult this cup was going to be to drink. But in Mark chapter 14 and verse 36, it says, Jesus said in his prayer, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. I am sweating blood at the prospect of the cross. But not what I will, what you will. His desires are just beginning here. In this prayer, they're beginning to fade. And they still within him is beginning to say, no, I'm going to put my desires to one side. I'm going to deny myself and I'm going to take hold of what you've got to me. Because this solidarity with, this participation with Christ, not just thinking Jesus was kind of a good guy. Maybe he's got some qualities we should emulate. Anyway, what's for dinner? No. Solidarity, participation, allegiance, communion with Christ. When you're in something with somebody, it's amazing what it does for the relationship, isn't it? 
you, 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 you do that charity bike ride together. You hardly knew them at the beginning. By the end, you're great friends. You have that work project. Nobody said it could be done. But you guys banded together and did it. You're part of that sports team. You never would have met each other. But by the end of the season, you're best friends. That challenge in your marriage. But you don't walk away, you walk through it. It's stronger than ever. What does that do? It binds you together in a way like nothing else can. And when we uh, go through this thing with Jesus, we're bound together and we have the real joy in life. Because the real joy in life is relationship. And we have the joy and the peace that comes through this communion with, this solidarity with, this participation with. And when we're saying, Jesus, I'm suffering. They reject me. I've had to give up my control of what the future would look like. I've lost my status. This isn't how I expected things to turn out. Shame is on my head. And Jesus says, me too. Me too. And somewhere in there, we find, and Bonhoeffer goes on to say in his argument, that to bear the cross proves to be the only way of triumphing over suffering. To bear the cross proves to be the only way of triumphing over suffering because it shows us that suffering won't stop us. That suffering won't define us. Those things that were holding us back, consuming our mind and our emotions and our time, are beginning to fade away. And everyone who's become great has walked through these things. I think about Abraham. He was great. And, you know, he was called to go to a place... He didn't know where it was. That's difficult. Try putting that into your sat-nav. But he went and he followed. And he had to give up his status and his expectations along the way. But he became the father of many nations. I, I, I think of Moses. He had a position of status, didn't he, in the Egyptian court. But he left that to be identified with the slaves. And there were some challenges along the way. But we're talking about him today because he was great. I think about Paul, who was one of the first leaders in the Christian church, and he endured beatings, and he endured shipwrecks, and he was bitten by a snake, and he was hauled up in prison, and he was charged with all kinds of things, and he faced beatings, and he he faced all kinds of difficulty. They used to riot when he spoke. I love that. I feel like, what am I doing wrong? Paul was brilliant. But Paul walked through some suffering because he had allegiance to Jesus. But that was real path to greatness. Paul changed the world. And that is not an overstatement. And let me just finish by encouraging you because all these people, at the same time, made terrible mistakes I mean these people like Peter and James and John that we're talking about Peter you know telling Jesus this is not the way things are even after die I'll never leave you he sat and denied Jesus three times but what happened Jesus restored him and you might be here thinking Matt to be honest I've jumped off for something easy I still attend church when I can. 
keep that kind of connection, but I'm not a radical disciple of Jesus. Well, Jesus isn't here to make you feel guilty today. He's here to do the same thing he did with his followers, both the ones he had with him when he was on the earth and the people who sought to follow God over millennia and made mistakes. He's here to reach down and pick you up. He's here to restore you and say, failure is not fatal. You see, the disciples a lot of time didn't understand and God knows there's a lot I don't understand. But you see, that doesn't seem to prove the most important thing in the end. The thing that seems to be most important is following, not knowledge. I mean, they get it completely wrong. His own disciples get it completely wrong, but they keep going. And this is my encouragement to you, that there is a joy and a peace that only through experience you really discover on the other side. But listen, don't stop in your guilt or your shame or wherever you're at. You know you're not giving 100% to the cause of Christ right now. Listen, keep going. Keep following. Keep moving forward. Keep looking to Jesus because he wants to lift you up and lift you through this. And you'll see that restoration is possible wherever you're at, whatever you've done, however you think you've disqualified yourself. You need to keep going and you need to keep following and you need to stick with him because this, the reason you can tell this is true is this, it's difficult. You know, get rich quick schemes, they don't work. Getting rich slowly, that does work. It does, it works. But get rich quick, it doesn't work. You know it's fake. You know it's a scam. And we hear things, whether from religious or non-religious people, and we know it's not that easy. What I've talked about today is not easy. That's how you know it's true. Discover more about us at lifelanks.org and stay inspired by subscribing to the podcast via iTunes. Thanks for listening.